Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am Justin Burke. I am here with Chris the Chew Man Chew and our phenomenal producer, Dr. Jessica Hayne. Say Jess- hey, say hi, Jessica. Hello, everyone. We are so excited to have the team together, and we had an outstanding guest, Dr. Stephen Patrick, who is here to discuss neonatal opiate withdrawal syndrome, which, as we learned, may be called NOWS or NOWS. Chris, what do you think? What are we calling it? Or nows? Nows? Jessica, what do you think? What are you going to call it from here on out? Yeah, nows. close. All right. Nows. I like it. So we're talking about nows, which is a part of NAS, or neonatal abstinence syndrome, a broader category. We learned a ton, not just that. Uh, but first, before we get into the content, hey, Chris, uh, tell us what we uh, tell us what this show is. Oh, yeah. Sure. No problem. We're the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Jessica, do you want to tell us a little more about our guest today? Sure. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Stephen Patrick. Dr. Patrick is the director of the Vanderbilt Center for Child Health Policy, an associate professor of pediatrics and health policy at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, and an attending neonatologist at Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. He is focused on conducting research and developing systems that improve outcomes for pregnant women and infants. Dr. Patrick is an author of the new AAP guidelines for neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome recently published in Pediatrics. In this episode, he teaches us about the best approach to treating withdrawal, why it's important to keep baby with mom, and the importance of destigmatizing addiction in healthcare. So without further ado, let's get to it. I can't wait to hear this now. Nows? <laughs> now? Nows. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for coming back to the show. Thank you. We have a phenomenal guest with us, Dr. Stephen Patrick. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. We are so excited to talk about I don't wanna I don't wanna jinx it by by messing it up, but it's what happens to babies sometimes if they have opiates in their systems when they're born. Is that right? That's right. All right. So to, to start things off, we like to, you know, be a little informal and to, to you know, loosen Chris up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we like to ask questions just to get to know you a little bit better. We always ask guests, can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself so we and the listeners know who you are? I guess I would describe myself as a uh, 41-year-old neonatologist, coffee connoisseur, who's a, a dad and father of two daughters and two dogs, too. Nice. What, uh, how do I become a coffee connoisseur? What's a good coffee or what, what can I tell, what can I say to other people that may, will make them think that I'm good at being a coffee connoisseur? Well, I might be a rookie, but for us, it was the Nespresso, which initially, like I'm cheap at baseline, Interesting. but the Nespresso was really quite a breakthrough for, for a home coffee. It, it's, it's pretty darn tasty. That's like the, uh, that's like the upper level of the Keurig, right? That's like the classy. It's, it's like a classy Keurig. Nice. Nice. Now, now I, I'm an AeroPress guy. Have you ever used an AeroPress? I haven't, although occasionally I'll still go straight up French press. Uh, you know, if it's going to be one of those days where you just kind of, you know, just go with the coarse grind and get some French press. 
Nice. But if you want something nice. just as easy as French press, I would say if you if you want to step up your game and it's very cheap and easy to do and you get some good results, try the AeroPress. AeroPress. Nice. Pick of the week. <laughs> I pick of the week, yes. Yeah. It's been a while since we've done those. Yeah. All right. So my first question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? You know, I think one of my favorite failures, and there's a lot to choose from, uh, was my fellow research project. I started my my research fellowship at the same time as my clinical fellowship, and I was going to develop a, uh, a risk prediction model for, for a newborn mort- mortality, and I just failed miserably. But what I learned along the way was a lot about coding. I learned a, a lot about, about research methods, and what that turned out to be were set the baseline for our very first paper that focused on neonatal abstinence syndrome that described the trends in, in babies having opioid withdrawal after birth. It was that failure that taught me how to, how to code, how to use that particular source of data too, that led to that paper being published. That's great. The, the failure was just part of the path, the obstacle in the way. Failure is always part of the path. I think sometimes people, people look back and they tell these stories of, of success, one paper after another, or grants, or whatever it is, the truth is there's far more failures than not. And, and I think sometimes that's as part of the narrative we've, we've got to be better about telling that you, the, the successes are made by the multiple failures that happen, and, and you learn, and you refine, and, and, and you move on to the next thing. Chris, that's why we're going to have tons of successes in the future, because we're, we're, getting the, <laughs> we're getting the failures out of the way now. Yeah. Um, how about, uh, I like to hear if people have any recommendations of books or, or even media consumption. What's a, what do you think is a, a good book or, or movie, TV show, anything that you think would be great for other physicians to read? So When Breath Becomes Air is, is my favorite book, particularly for physicians. Just the writing, his story, the way he relates with patients is one of my favorite. For, for pediatricians and for neonatologists, there's a book called Juniper that I think is pretty good too. It is written by some journalists who, who had a preterm infant, and mm-hmm. they talk about their entire story path, including their interactions with neonatologists and pediatricians, and I think that's pretty darn compelling. Cool. I don't know that one. That's great. Juniper. I'll check it out. Yeah. Juniper. Jessica, do you have any questions you want to ask? Ooh. Let's see. So you gave us some books. Do you have a favorite quarantine TV show or activity you've been doing? Yeah. So we have, we've tried out a bunch of different TV shows. Yellowstone that we watch, which is on Peacock of all things. It is intense and awesome. So we've enjoyed that. And at least for our family, what we've done a whole lot of is playing cards. Our kids are a little bit older yeah. now. So we play, uh, we play spades and hearts pretty competitively in our house. Nice. Anyone play Canasta? Any Canasta players? I don't even know what Canasta is. Uh, Tell us about it. It's a card game. game. You guys should check it out. It also is the Spanish word for basket. I don't know much more. Let's move on to some content. Let's. uh, (laughs) Great segue. Uh, So, Chris and I are relatively distant from some of our care in the newborn nursery. And I think that makes us very excited to learn about this case, but also means that, you know, we're going to be at a very basic level, but we're back. We're, we're subbing in for the interns because they're having their graduation party and we're taking care of this kid, Finn. So Finn is a three-day-old full-term infant that we're seeing in the newborn nursery at the children's hospital. Finn's mother, Michelle, has a history of IV heroin use, but started buprenorphine to treat her opiate use disorder as soon as she found out she was pregnant. 
The nurse is concerned, though, that Finn has been fussy, tremulous, and is now having trouble breastfeeding. So, Dr. Patrick, first, is it fine if we call you Stephen? Is that okay for the show? We're informal. We're, we're friends now. Yes, of course. Excellent. So, so Stephen, when, when you go to evaluate a patient like this in the newborn nursery that's found to be fussy, tremulous, and having trouble breastfeeding, can you tell us first, what are you thinking about this? And not to jump to the, the last page of the book, but is it neonatal abstinence syndrome? Is it neonatal opiate withdrawal syndrome? Is it NOWS, N-O-W-S? What do, how, do, how do we even talk about these types of patients? Justin, it's whatever you want it to be. But we, you know, in the, in the AAP statement, we, we talk about neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. And we've seen federal agencies use this term more. I think it's a little bit clearer. Neonatal abstinence syndrome is a, is a bit of a weird term. It's also nonspecific. People use it to describe an infant who's been exposed to a substance that have basically any weird movements and behaviors after birth. So what we term neonatal, neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome is withdrawal from an opioid, but it can still include and often does include other substances, nicotine, benzodiazepines, you name it. We just think it's an easier term, and it's more in line with what we see folks doing in the federal government. To, to your point about what do I think about when I, when I walk into that room, I think about the environment first. You know, what's going on in that room? What have we, have we, have we tried to optimize supportive mom? Has mom, you mentioned breastfeeding, is, is, is hard. Have we already had lactation see mom? Have we started to support that? So I think about the ways we can modify the environment, sort of ha- optimize mom and baby together in that environment. That's the first thing I think about. And as far as symptoms of neonatal abstinence syndrome or neonatal opiate withdrawal specifically, what are the symptoms that we start to start thinking about that as a pathology. When do we when do we start thinking? Okay, I think this is what's going on. Let's let's move forward. Well, so generally you have some history, so it's good to know that there's been some opioid exposure. But where I think about what what the clinical signs look like, it has a lot to do with where opioid receptors are. So you have common CNS signs, common GI signs. So you can have uh, poor weight gain, dehydration, loose stools. Common CNS signs uh, are tremors that you just described, increased muscle tone. You can get some weird autonomic stuff too, like tachypnea. And so you get this constellation of signs. And you know one of the things that's tricky about this that can feel a little nonspecific is that there's usually a couple other substances involved too. So what, what neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, it's often this constellation of both withdrawal from things like opioids, but toxidromes too, sometimes from from things like SSRIs. So you see these things playing out in different ways in infants. And and that's one of the reasons why I think we see so much variability in the diagnosis itself. So my question is, so we we may see a combination of withdrawal from, from opiates. We may see some other toxidromes. So with this sort of large heterogeneity of different types of symptoms, how how do we go about trying to tease that out and and figure out wh- where are we coming from this is it only mostly from history do we do you know like what what what's the best way to approach that well it's history and clinical presentation so this is why it's important to have a standardized approach to how you do this there are semi objective scoring tools that most hospitals use to 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 quantify essentially those clinical signs Many of those tools are old. They're older than uh, any of us on this uh, on this podcast. They haven't been validated, and there's lots of issues with inter-rater reliability too. So there are challenges. But one thing that we know from research is that having a standardized approach, doing the same thing every time, 
training both your staff, and that includes not just nurses, but it also includes physicians too, on how to use and interpret these tools is really important. And let's jump to that. Can you talk a little bit about the different scoring systems for identifying and monitoring opiate withdrawal? And if the AAP recommends one scoring system over another to, to help make the diagnosis or to monitor? There are a bunch of scoring tools out there, but the most common ones are modifications of the original Finnegan score that was uh, developed in the 1970s by Loretta Finnegan. And that's what we use at our hospital today. Other hospitals and other systems use systems like Eat Sleep Console. It was developed by a group at Yale. And it's simpler. It's, you know, can the baby eat? Can they sleep? Can they console? Then they're probably all right. One of the things that we know is that there's just not a lot of research around any of these things. And so the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't endorse one tool over another tool for that reason. There are actually some clinical trials underway that are NIH funded evaluating Eat Sleep Console. So it's going to be interesting. We might actually have some data in the next few years on which scoring tool we should be using. But for now, it's just important that you use one and that you stick to it. Is there any contraindication to use one tool or another? Are there um, age requirements or can you be too young or can you age out of it? Are there other types of things in which case either of these tools would be inappropriate to use? That's a great question. And one where we find ourselves often, actually. So these tools were developed on term infants in the 70s that were exposed to heroin, where the mean length of stay was like six days. So what do you do with preterm infants? And what do you do with infants that are in the hospital 21 days? Um, it's problematic. So if you if you score a 33-weeker on the Finnegan score, they're going to score higher because they're tachypnic, because they have a higher uh, respiratory rate. Same deal as you see sleep patterns start to change as infants get older. So it's a problem, and it's, a, it's, a, it, and it's not one that we have a, a solution to right now, but it's one where every hospital still goes through that. So we, we have this, like what we do, we get the information and we interpret it in the context of what's going, going on with that infant. And so if we don't have mom's history, if we're unsure if she's using heroin or prescription opiates, but we go to the newborn exam and are looking at some of the things that you taught us as far as the irritability, poor weight gain, some diarrhea, some fussiness, what are the dangers of this going untreated? Why are we worried about this, this syndrome and, and, and why, is, why is it important for us to recognize this? Well, I would say the first thing, and particularly in that setting, is that withdrawal should be a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to make sure that we look at other things first, including sepsis, hypoglycemia. A lot of these things can present in a really vague manner early. So you got to make sure that you've, you've really looked at those things first. But you, know, you mentioned what can happen if we, un, if we don't diagnose drug withdrawal. One of the worries is that we, we discharge infants home and they have withdrawal at home. And that's really the only setting where withdrawal can be dangerous. So if infants have withdrawal at home, they have severe dehydration, you know, whatever it is, and they're left untreated, that can certainly be serious, although it's pretty uncommon. And so, you know, we hear a lot about the opioid crisis throughout all populations. How common is opiate use disorder among pregnant women? Is this something that is a major burden on, on pregnant women that they're facing? Yeah, and we've seen a, a big growth over time too. You know, data are getting a, a little bit old at this point, but CDC published some data in the last couple of years. There's about a fourfold increase from 1999 to 2014 in diagnoses of opioid use disorder in pregnant women. 
And, and those are the ones who get the diagnosis at the time of delivery. We've seen from some of our own work that the number of infants having opioid withdrawal at the time of birth has grown eightfold from 2000 to 2016. And in 2016, about one infant was born every 15 minutes in the U.S. having opioid withdrawal. So it's increasingly a problem. And the solutions are complex, and they begin well before we're taking care of the infant in our hospitals. And as far as the severity of opiate withdrawal in a newborn, does it matter what substances mom is are taking, whether it's heroin, oxycodone, buprenorphine, methadone, or has other substances, it sounds like, it's not something I was thinking about, but are these all kind of leading to the severity of, of newborn symptoms? All of those things do matter. So our research group has done some work on what makes withdrawal more likely and what, what makes it more severe. So what's interesting, some of the things we were actually talking about a bit uh, a bit ago. So if you are closer to term, you're more likely to have withdrawal. If you're a male, you're more likely to have withdrawal. The opioid type matters. Longer half-life opioids, you have a higher risk of having opioid withdrawal. But if you add in cigarettes, benzodiazepines, gabapentin, all of those things increase risk of withdrawal and increase uh, severity, particularly benzodiazepines in, in some of our work. And one of the things that people talk about is that, well, then why don't we prevent some of that uh, some of that opioid exposure? And then sometimes people will target medications for opioid use disorder as something that they want to eliminate before birth. And that's really problematic because we know that medications for opioid use disorder serve a purpose. For pregnant women with, with opioid use disorder, we know that uh, it reduces their risk of having uh, relapse overdose, things like hepatitis C and HIV, and it makes it more likely that the infant is going to go to term. And, and that's a good thing. It is much better to have a term infant who has opioid withdrawal than a baby born at 24 weeks. Babies born at 24 weeks really don't have withdrawal. They're too immature. So we are trading this infant who was is, who is born you know, at term with, with some opioid withdrawal for that very preterm infant. And that's a, that's a pretty good trade-off. Follow up on that. I mean, I'm I'm so that's not something I knew. As far as is there thoughts to why you are less likely to go through withdrawal, either as you have greater maturity or as a male? I always think of prematurity as being ones who are at a higher risk for everything, and I would not think that that sex would play a role. And are there thoughts to the mechanism behind either of these? No, not good ones. I mean, <laughs> particularly the, 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 the sex differences. I mean, you know, enough to, to, to put in a, a discussion section of a paper, but it, it you know, there, there is some literature about male-female differences and some neonatal outcomes. I mean, the prematurity piece is likely due to a couple factors, one of which is, uh, of which is maturity. And the other thing that we talked about earlier is that all these scoring tests tools were developed on term infants. So it could be that we are also misidentifying some mm. things earlier, but I mean, it, it is pretty rare to see, and I, I've certainly seen infants in the, in the lower, you know, in the lower 30s have withdrawal, but it's just not as common. Wow. So to follow up that, you know, in, in terms of looking at different categories or risks, do we see any types of like social determinants or, or structural racism uh, affecting these, these types of patients and families? And how do we, how do you approach that? Yeah, no question about it. So this is all about social determinants of health. This is why a comprehensive approach is really needed so that we step back and we think about, you know, the broader picture. You know, so often we, we respond to this problem in, in our ICUs. But the truth is, is that, you know, it's not as if a woman becomes pregnant and says, hey, I think I'm going to start using an opioid right now. 
we know that there are, for many women, long histories of trauma. Uh, so from some studies, half of, of pregnant women in treatment report physical trauma, three-quarters sexual trauma in their past. If we look at the ACE literature, we know that ACEs are far more common among people who inject drugs too. When we look at our own patients, there are frequently issues of food insecurity, uh, transportation issues, housing insecurity. So all of those things are important. And the truth is, if we want to have healthy babies, we have to have healthy moms. We have to get them into treatment. And I think, you know, we've done some work looking at barriers to access to treatment for pregnant women. Pregnant women have a harder time than non-pregnant women getting into treatment in the U.S. And just getting into treatment, period, is hard at baseline. To your point about systemic racism, increasingly, we're starting to see uh, reports where we see that play out and who gets into treatment. So we've seen some reports from Massachusetts recently where, where there, there are differences where, where among non-Hispanic Black women who are able to get in to receive medications for opioid use disorder compared to non-Hispanic white women. So, you know, we talk about the opioid crisis a lot as if it uh, focusing on non-Hispanic white populations. We don't talk enough about these issues of equity that play out in treatment, and then they play out downstream too when we look at systemic racism in the child welfare system. It seems like as part of this too, there's a lot of stigma, obviously, against women who have addiction during pregnancy. And in general, even I remember some of my experiences in the newborn nursery where the stigmatizing language started very early in that child's life. Are there thoughts on how to reduce stigma or... Can you tell us how much how the stigma that surrounds addiction affects families? Yeah, well, I think it drives them away from care. You take a population that's stigmatized that has a uh, has a history of trauma. This is why trauma informed care, which has now become a catch all term for a lot of things, but trauma informed care is so important because it it is a barrier to folks getting into to treatment. You know, we are just broadly when we think about language too and and messaging in the media and beyond, we've seen groups, uh, you know, even the AP now doesn't, doesn't use the term addict any longer. We still see stigmatizing language around infants where we see uh, people talk about infants being born addicted, but infants can't be born addicted. That is a, a, addiction is a psychological process. I've never seen an infant go from nurse to nurse to try to get more morphine. You know, that's just not how it works. And the language is used to sort of create this exaggerated uh, process of what's going on. I mean, drug withdrawal uh, is an expected outcome for a woman in recovery, and we should treat it as such, and we, we shouldn't stigmatize. We don't stigmatize other things. So I, I take care of a lot of infants whose moms were uncontrolled diabetics, and we in some ways glamorize it, like, look at this 15-pound baby. We've, we've got to treat addiction like a chronic relapsing condition because that's what it is. So to follow up on language, because it's so stigmatizing and there's a lot of stigmatizing language out there, you obviously have to talk to moms and families about what's going on with baby. And even before the baby's there, you probably have to discuss with them as well. How do you approach it? What was an example of your sort of script for this? It's a good question because, you know, oftentimes <laughs> where I am, uh, I'm spoiled because I'm in, you know, the, the history has been has been taken. One of the things that we know is that you know, having a standardized approach to how you screen is important. And screening is different than toxicology testing too. You know, this is all about setting a relationship of trust. And that begins well before I come into the picture as a neonatologist. So building an environment where within our team, where you know our obstetricians, addiction medicine folks, 
begin to engage and develop a therapeutic relationship is really critical. From our team, this is why we do prenatal consults, while we're working on uh, even having lactation, see moms, and potentially home, home nurse visitation prenatally to begin to foster trust. My script when I encounter families is a lot of listening. And the truth is, you, you can probably tell by just like the, the time that I've been on the podcast, I do a lot of talking and listening is sometimes hard for me, but I, th- I think being really careful and thoughtful and hearing people's story, if, if you actually listen to them, that it can be really powerful, educational. And, and I think part of what people need to feel is being valued. And this is a population that just persistently doesn't feel that. Hi, I'm Dr. Audrey Tremolay. Join me to learn more than just the criteria for KD. We'll talk about how to look for perilimbic sparing and eye redness and why it's not truly just conjunctivitis, how to look for a red tongue without the papilla, and the non-vesicular rash that's accentuated in the GU region. We're also going to talk about why you need an echo two weeks after hospital discharge and how the evidence is still pending on how to treat IVIG-resistant KD. So please join me for the Cribsiders episode on Kawasaki disease. Thank you. All right, so uh, let's get back to our case. And and you examine Finn and notice he's had some increased muscle tone, has some mild tremors, especially when disturbed. But otherwise, his exam is pretty normal. Michelle, Finn's mom, is tearful and worried. She asks if they're going to take her baby away. She'd like to continue breastfeeding, but is wondering if she should switch to formula. As we kind of talked about, you know, Michelle's having a rough time with some of the stigmatizing language and things too, and we're we're trying to support her. Do you recommend breastfeeding for infants with opiate withdrawal syndrome? And are, are there any situations where you would not recommend breastfeeding? We do, and we support it at our hospital, too, with lactation support. This is another area where, where there's not a lot of good evidence. And so we do know that for women in long-term recovery or women in recovery, that breastfeeding, it's good for the maternal infant bond. All the, all the breastfeeding positive uh, things that we know about breastfeeding apply here, too. But it also results in uh, less severe withdrawal in the infants too. So that so that's all positive. So we do promote it. You know, the question is when do we not? And when do we? We typically don't when when there's been relapse within the last 30 days. That is not without controversy. And there are you know pockets of the country, particularly in the Northeast, where some of my colleagues there they have different approaches to breastfeeding. And the truth is, this is an area where we need more research because breastfeeding can be powerful, not just from the breast milk, but also from the bond. But that, that's, that's been our approach. And at time of birth, are you often doing a urine drug test to, to see if there's any relapse or see if there's any current drug use around the peri delivery? No, not, not generally. So what, what I would typically say is, you know, approaching toxicology tests like we would approach any other diagnostic test, how is it going to change our management? What I see when it comes to toxicology testing is we do a lot of it. Uh, And we do a lot of it uh, in ways that don't inform our clinical management, but that are there to inform our child welfare systems. And And I think that's problematic. So for example, and and it's in the AAP policy statement, if we have a mom in long-term recovery, you know, she's being seen. Why do I need to test the infant at all? I know, like I I have communication with my colleagues in OB. There's not a lot of value in that. And and from my opinion, and and, and if we look at the tests that are common, I mean, urine drug screens can, we can certainly do them on infant. We typically, we miss them very frequently and it's a small window. So what's more common is that we see meconium or umbilical cord testing. And that can capture a pretty long window. 
So what happens if a mom starts into treatment uh, at 24, 25 weeks? We send meconium, we see something from before. I think we just need to be thoughtful about our approaches when it comes to toxicology testing. And it goes back to the real solution here is building a therapeutic relationship um, with mom, certainly before pregnancy, before delivery, excuse me. I, I remember this in newborn nursery where we had a lot of drug testing on moms and it would come back benign except for positive THC. And the cascade that that activated of caseworkers were involved, CPS was involved. And it had such major outcomes that were so not clinically relevant. And what we've what we know about that too. So there, from 2011 to 2017, uh, there was an increase in annual uh, admissions to the foster care system of about 10,000. And so uh, in 2017, about 50,000 infants were in the foster care system, most for parental substance use. So we've seen a lot of changes to the, the child welfare system federally that really aim to be more upstream, get moms into treatment. But a lot of that really hasn't translated down to the bedside yet. And one of the reasons is that there's so much state variability. There isn't a lot of funding, both for the states to, to focus on this and certainly not for workers at the bedside. So what plays out, this is one of those areas where when we talk about systemic racism, there are some studies from the 1990s where from I think it was Polk County, Florida, uh, or it was right outside of T uh, Tampa. I don't know. I'm from Florida. So I, you know, I've been talking about my Florida geography, but where they sent, they sent uh, left behinds, they collected left behind urines. So they knew what substance use patterns were like in pregnancy. And they looked to see who got referred to child welfare. And there was a tenfold difference between non-Hispanic white families and non-Hispanic black families. Uh, the non-Hispanic black families got referred 10 times as likely, even though their substance use patterns were about the same. So we see this play out time and time again, and it's really problematic. That's nuts. Should we go back to, the, to, to this kid that we're looking at now? And I'm, I'm wondering, we're, we're looking at this kid, we're maybe doing a, 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 one of the modified Finnegan scores, and you've seen that the score ranges from like five to eight. Is this something you look at to decide whether they get transferred to the NICU, or are you going to continue to follow them in the newborn nursery? How, what, what are we doing here, and how, how are we continuing to follow up on, the, on this kid that we're talk, talking about here? This is where we start thinking about what are the non-pharmacologic measures that we're doing. We do not transfer in our hospital to the NICU at all for infants who have opioid withdrawal unless they have another medical reason, you know, if there's respiratory distress or something else going on, but not for withdrawal by itself. And certainly in that five to eight range, we would really work to optimize the environment, the non-pharmacologic care. How are we supporting mom? How are we supporting breastfeeding and, and responding to the needs of that infant and that diet together? What I've seen clinically, when we used to, we used to bring our infants to the NICU, and I, I remember a pretty, pretty stark, an infant I was taking care of in the unit who was like 28 days old and was on uh, morphine, phenobarbital, and clonidine for withdrawal. And we have a part of our unit where moms can't room in. And I just transferred the baby over to the side where they could. And this mom, who was in long-term recovery, held that infant, was there, attentive, and we pretty quickly weaned medication. I, you know, one of the things, as cheesy as this sounds, is that we are treating mom withdrawal in a lot of cases. I mean, just go, if you, you know, I have two girls, imagine going to, to our hospital room at two days of life and saying, hey, I'm going to take your baby and take him to a loud chaotic environment and it's going to be fine. I, you know, I, we, we take an infant going through withdrawal and, and we put him next to babies, you know, on ventilators and ECMO, and that's probably not the best place for him. I like the idea of mom withdrawal syndrome. I think it goes with NAS. 
<laughs> nows and mims. Use. <laughs> you can use that for the next guidelines too. If oh, you, that's great. You I like it. No, totally. I'm writing yeah. that one down. For the next stuff. Like, yeah. Good. Um, Wait, so if we don't use those medicines, are, are we still using those medicines anymore? Or are we doing different medicines now? We do, right? So for severe withdrawal, you know, we treat it with an opioid. And, and so, you know, there is, most hospitals use morphine, uh, but there's recent studies suggesting both buprenorphine and methadone compared to morphine may reduce the length of treatment. With that said, it's really about the process of care. I'll just talk about our experience at Vanderbilt. So we developed a program about three years ago now for opioid exposed infants where we moved them out of the unit. They were about 10% of our, of our total uh, babies in the unit. It's a pretty big unit. Moved them out of the unit. We've had now about 400 infants greater than 35 weeks who are opioid exposed who have gone through our program. We're only treating about 20% with morphine. And it's because we have a more holistic approach that keeps moms and babies together. So, so we treat them, but we treat them less frequently. And our use of secondary medications for withdrawal is, is just, it's very rare these days. And when you say secondary medication, just to clarify, things like clonidine and things like that are more symptomatic as opposed to an opioid themselves. Yeah, clonidine and adenine. phenobarbital yeah, Got it. are the two most common. And are there specific patients that you choose of who would receive methadone versus buprenorphine versus the the tincture of? Uh, uh... We don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore because uh, the DTO because it has a lot of alcohol content and oh. so it's really it's so it's it's, it's, it's morphine. Yeah, <laughs> so it's morphine. Uh, so uh, no is the answer. So in terms of uh, so treating opioid withdrawal with an opioid. Some folks have talked about whether or not if a mom's on methadone, should you treat the baby with methadone? There isn't good evidence for that yet. Uh, and so what is most important from our perspective is just having a consistent approach. So if you, you know, if you change medications without good evidence, you know, that, that creates a care process that could, be, that could be complicated. So in general, you know, we stick to morphine and that's what we use. With the secondary medications like the clonidine and fumabar, can you explain exactly when you would use each in each case and how it's working, the mechanism in which we're, we're, we're using for those? Yeah. So clonidine is, you know, it's an alpha two. It, it's the more common and it's the one people people use now. There are concerns about phenobarbital. Phenobarbital was, was kind of commonly used as a second agent and really commonly used when there was a benzodiazepine involved too. One of the concerns about phenobarbital, at least in some studies, there's some uh, like febrile seizures. It's been associated with some developmental delay. And so there's more of a push now to try to use clonidine that doesn't have those, those same you know, long-term outcomes. And we certainly have a lot more to study here. One of the concerns that we've had too is that what we see is that people will start on, on an opioid and then they'll add on phenobarbital. They'll wean off the opioid and they'll discharge the infant home on phenobarbital. We did a study here in Tennessee, about half of the treated kids got discharged on phenobarbital. Their length of treatment was three times longer. And compared to adults, we're talking like 20 days versus 60 days length of treatment. The tail end of that, one infant was on phenobarbital for 200 days. So, it, you know, this is part of like, if we, if we really optimize the care process, we keep moms and babies together, we use fewer medications, we use the right medications, we really shouldn't have to have these really long tapers. And in general, what's the, the normal progression of disease? Like, when do you first start seeing symptoms? Is it within the first 24 hours? Is it within the first four days? And what are we expecting as kind of the curve of, of withdrawal and treatment? So the onset of withdrawal varies by a bunch of things. 
the type of opioid, the timing of last use. So it can occur as early. I've seen infants having withdrawal at the time of birth to several days out. And, it, and that is really dependent upon, we think, the half-life. So this is one of the reasons why AAP recommends observation for four to seven days after birth um, to see when that infant has drug withdrawal. This is another area where we really need uh, more research to understand how can we predict based upon various factors, the timing, the risk of withdrawal, so that we can do a better job of tailoring that observation period. Because it does result in a long observation period for some infants that may be at low risk and, and separating out mom and baby sometimes. And so that's a four to seven day observation period for any mom who has opiate use or on medications for opiate use disorder. Correct. Got it. And so, so how often with these other, with these patients, you know, you're monitoring for, you know, whatever possible opiate they might be on. How often do you see complications with these other toxidromes that you sort of mentioned earlier? Is this something that we, we should always be aware of, or is it not as often? So, you know, sort of this, this general time frame you're looking at in terms of half-lives is generally okay. For almost all of them, the treatment is supportive anyway. Um, so if you see like what we think we see from, you know, an SSRI toxidrome, it's really supportive. So it really doesn't change. But, you know, what we, what we sometimes think we see is we'll see peaks of, of withdrawal clinical signs based upon different substances. Like we might see a nicotine peak first, followed by an opioid. That is not terribly uncommon, but really the treatment is the same. And, and in some cases, it's almost an academic argument about what we see and what we don't see. But it, it does explain, I think, some of the variability in some of the clinical signs. When you start treatment, is there a threshold? Are there certain cases where it's like, okay, the baby's you know relatively fussy, but mom's able to console her, you know, we're okay to play this out. Or is there a specific score on the modified finagen scale? When do you start treatment and when do you start determining whether to titrate up or to start taper down? There are so many different approaches to this uh, that it makes it challenging and it's confusing. This is why having one scoring system and sticking to it's important. For the modified Finnegan, it's usually two scores of an eight or a score of 12 that many folks will start treatment. But here's the thing. What does it mean to have a 10? What does it mean to have a 14? We, this hasn't really been tested. So in general, you capture the infant's clinical signs, and then you start to taper. And there are currently studies ongoing now, like how fast can you taper? How slow can you taper? We typically would taper about 20% a day until we get off. And then I think this is one of the things that, that really sticking to it, I think is important. You know, this is another area of controversy about using PRN morphine dosing while you have withdrawal. So taper, use a PRN can sometimes be really powerful because sometimes what happens is folks will go back to the previous day and you end up with these really long tapers as well. So that's really not straightforward, right? And, and you can see how variable it is and it's because we have no evidence and there is not one strict weaning protocol. So, you know, in the, in the policy statement, we put in the treatment protocol from the mother study. Uh, this was a randomized controlled trial looking, comparing a maternal use of methadone versus uh, buprenorphine and infant outcomes. And they have a pretty rigorous approach to, uh, to both how they start, start morphine and weaning. Uh, it's a good approach and it is one approach. And so having one and sticking to it is what's important. I remember as a senior resident teaching, we wean 10% a day no one questioned it. And I, someone is going to listen to this podcast. And I, like, yeah. Why are you doing 20% a day? But I, I, I think, I think this is one of those things where, um, this is where we need some, some evidence. 
This is great. And I think, you know, also you mentioned that non-pharmacological interventions are important, that the environment, are there specific things? Is it just quiet room with mom? Is there anything else that we can try to be doing to minimize the amount of medications needed and to, to get mom and baby home quicker? The biggest intervention is keeping moms and baby together. Moms and baby together and breastfeeding. Those are, we have evidence for both of those things that are important. But the other thing is, is tailoring to what the infant's doing. So if the infants, uh, and we have, when we talk about some of those develop, developmental domains in the, um, in the statement, but you know, if the baby's tremulous, then you know, maybe swaddling is a good idea. If the baby seems to be hyperstimulated by light, then maybe dim lights. That you know, this, this trying to tailor the, the non-pharmacologic approach to the needs of the infant are also important. So we're watching this, this baby Finn, and I'm wondering, at what point do we say that they're ready to go home? What, what, what mile markers or goals do we need to hit and where we can say, mom, this is what we're looking for, and then it happens, and you're like, okay, you guys can go home. Is, is, it, is it that easy, or is it more complicated than that? No, it can be easy. So look, we've usually at this point taken care of the usual newborn things that you're that you're thinking about, right? The usual kind of getting back to weight, things like that. So we typically would keep an infant 24 to 48 hours after after we're done weaning, and then we would discharge home. We don't discharge home on medications, uh, but that is our general approach. And then we think about what does that discharge process look like? How can we make sure that we've thought about what's on the other end and to try to help the pediatrician on the other end that is taking care of that infant? And so we do that by making sure that we've scheduled an appointment. That seems like a low bar, but uh, but doesn't always happen. Scheduled an appointment for the, for the pediatrician that we've uh, referred to home nurse visitation, uh, that we've thought about things like early intervention services. Um, and we've looked at other needs too, like hepatitis C exposure. About half of our infants have hepatitis C exposure. And we know from some of our work that many of them go home to not get tested. Um, and this is another thing where you got to test so that we can make sure there are cures now uh, that we can follow and, and see if the infant clears or not. And you mentioned early intervention and getting them on board early. Are there long-term consequences of opiate withdrawal syndrome? Is this going to have major issues in their future development? This is an area where research is, uh, is, is needed. It's really conflicted if you look over time, and it's confounded too. So, you know, alcohol use is somewhat common among women with opioid use disorder. And we know that alcohol is the number one preventable cause of developmental delay in kids. You know, many of the issues we were talking about before, like food insecurity, poverty, all of these things can be associated with poor obstetric outcomes, and they may influence long-term outcomes too. So the research is really murky when you look at long-term outcomes. Um, it suggests there may be some issues with attention, maybe speech. It doesn't appear that there's any devastating consequences. But one of the things that I always talk about is that, look, we the research is what it is. Like it, We have these holes in research, but we need to make sure that we've created the safety net for families. Early intervention services are services available in any community. It's part of the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. Uh, it's part C. Uh, they they can get into get into services for their infants, so they should be referred. Withdrawal is a qualifying diagnosis in many states, and in some, opioid exposure is, and and so that's important. So even though we're not sure, we need to make sure that we are um, that we're following infants appropriately. So I'm a general pediatrician, and I I don't see a lot of babies in inpatient. So when I see these types of patients, I see them when they come for their first newborn follow up. What, what are things that I need to be looking out for, making sure it happens, and how should my follow-up change compared to other types of babies that I'm following up? You know, 
I would start thinking about mom's needs too. You know, this is an optimal time to think about um, in that first visit, uh, not just thinking about postpartum depression, but also relapse for mom and thinking about the dyad collectively. I think that's really important for pediatricians to, to approach. You know, for the infant, um, looking to see if there are additional follow-up needs. Again, we mentioned hepatitis C. It's oftentimes missed. In a study that we did in Tennessee, uh, about, a, uh, about 20% of uh, hepatitis C exposed infants were actually tested within the first two years of life. And here's another issue where we found issues of equity. Non-Hispanic black infants about 10% of the time uh, and controlling for a whole slew of other factors. Uh, nothing explainable other than systemic racism. So I think those those pieces are, are are important, but I would say focus on mom. Certainly, look for the clinical signs that we talked about, um, but but think about some of those follow up issues that sometimes are, are are missed. So, big picture things: we were doing this episode right around the time of the release of the most recent AAP clinical report on neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, of which you're the lead author. What are the big changes that have come out in this publication? Are there any major ways of how we're viewing or treating opiate withdrawal syndrome in newborns? Well, they're clinical guidance, and you you know just reading them, you know it's not exactly a cookbook that says do this, do that. And in part, it's many of the issues we've talked about where we lack evidence for so many things. There are some big changes. Our intentional approach to this was to have a holistic approach on the dyad. So in the report, we talk about moms. We talk about the follow-up. We even talk about early education programs like Early Head Start. I think we have to have a holistic approach. This is more complicated than how it plays out in our neonatal intensive care units. In some ways, the, uh, the medical management of titrating morphine is the easiest part. And we have to think about these other, these, other, um, these other issues. One of the biggest changes in this statement was the focus on not being in the neonatal intensive care unit that infants really can be safely cared for outside of a neonatal intensive care unit, and in some cases, better. So having now just helped with these brand new guidance that have come out, what, what are things that, that excite you in the future in, in management of these patients and the, the dyads? So I, I think the, the focus overall for all of us as pediatricians on the dyad is important. Uh, where I see things happening from the opioid crisis in communities and in hospital systems is partnership. I, I'm a policy geek. Uh, if we look at policy changes, both at the federal level, the state level, and even our own institution, what we see is that the opioid crisis has been a vehicle to expose a lot of problems, uh, a lot of problems in maternal child health programs, federally at the state level and in our own hospital systems. So I think this is bringing us, like, you know, bringing us together to tackle problems holistically, pediatricians, OBs, addiction medicine. That's where this needs to be because there are so many silos that our families face and these families in particular, you know, we just, I just rattled off a bunch of services that families are eligible for. There's this sort of overload of siloed programs. So how can we sort of work to harmonize this, not just in our hospital systems, but in our state and federal policies too? Building off that, are there resources or things people can do or places people can go that are interested in this that want to get more involved on a policy or advocacy level? I always go back to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Their Washington office is stellar. There are tons of great resources there. Their work on everything from you know the child welfare system uh, to, to these issues, that, that's where I would recommend folks start. I, I am very excited by this. Uh, one more question about the future. I'm a big buprenorphine fan myself. Is this the future of treatment for, for neonatal abstinence syndrome? Or are we going to be putting all newborns on buprenorphine? 
the data are pretty compelling, actually. There's a, a study that was in New England Journal a few years ago by Walter Kraft and colleagues that found uh, superior outcomes. And when you, when you compare it to, to morphine too, less respiratory depression. Uh, so I think it's pretty compelling in terms of the, the medication. I would say that I think the medication itself is less important than all the things that we were talking about. And so if we do the things to set, set things up the right way, uh, then we end up using less medication. And one of the problems with all the trials is that, you know, we have this kind of complexity of all this, all this, all the things that are going on. I mean, clinical trials are set up to test efficacy. And so we have a controlled environment where we can, we can really look at the difference between morphine and buprenorphine, and that's great, but it doesn't really contextualize to all the things we've been talking about. So I, I think buprenorphine is a great drug. Uh, I am skeptical that it's going to be taken over everywhere, although some centers use it and they love it. So. I mean, you almost wrapped up majority of like the big take-home point, it sounds like, is the fact that there's a lot of things that we can do for, for these patients more than just medications. Do you, do you have any other great take-home points you want to give our listeners before we go? I think thinking broadly about what our patients need. For me, our journey around the opioid crisis has been, it's been eye-opening and understanding how systems do and don't work and how we need to address things from food security to housing insecurity. I mean, these are kind of core things as pediatricians that we think about, right? They play out for many of these families too. Having a broad view of care and well-being instead of just health. You know, it's interesting because as pediatricians, that's how we generally think about problems. But for this problem, traditionally, we have way over-medicalized it. We've talked about uh, here, let's give some morphine, let's be in a, a neonatal intensive care unit. We've overcomplicated it, and I think that's made it harder for us. I think it's step back, think about the dyad collectively, think about these other issues, which we are trained to do as pediatricians. Uh, and I, I see that happening now, and I think that's it's going to make a big difference for families moving forward. Excellent. Thank you so much for, for those take-home points. We really appreciate you spending the time tonight uh, to talk to us about this, this, this really important area. Before we leave, do you have anything you want to plug? Well, you certainly can check out the Center for Child Health Policy. It's uh, childpolicy.org. Uh, this is our, uh, our center that's focused on improving the well-being of families and children. Certainly, we do research, but we also do, do work more broadly on, on child well-being, including uh, some work we're doing right now on rapidly trying to understand the impact of COVID-19 on children and families and trying to get that information out to the public and policymakers so that it can inform the decisions that we make uh, in the coming months as we try to help families out. Awesome. Well, thank you. Awesome. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list, also known as Knowledge Food Formula Feeds, to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Dr. Jessica Hain. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Justin Lee Burke. This has been Jessica Hain. And this has been Chris, the Chew Man Chew. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. BCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.